Hi, and welcome to the Ready for Polyamory podcast. As always, my name is Laura Boyle, and I'm your host. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, cohabitation in polyamorous relationships. And our guest today is my friend Corwin. Both he and I have lived in polyamorous households before. We're going to be talking about that on a personal level a little bit, as well as sort of on a theoretical basis. Um, And before we get to that, I want to apologize quickly for how long the holiday break dragged out. My family caught COVID, so, you know, things extended by a couple of weeks. I think you all can forgive me. Um, In housekeeping news, we've got uh, Ready for Polyamory classes coming up on this Sunday, January 23rd at 3 p.m. Eastern. I'm running Beyond the Kitchen Table, which there's still tickets available for that. They're $15 for just that class. You and as many of your partners or members of your polycule who want to gather around one computer monitor uh, are perfectly welcome to use one ticket. Um, And then also it's available as part of a bundle with our February class, which is on February 22nd, which is a Tuesday. um, And it's Relationship Anarchy Applied Play Partnerships, which is what the title sounds like. It's applying the tenets of the Relationship Anarchist Manifesto to the use case of play partnerships and kink relationships. I am also this week kind of losing my mind because Dan Savage mentioned my website on the Savage Lovecast. Uh, He used it as the place that he got his definition for kitchen table polyamory while correcting himself for using the wrong term. And uh, I screamed when I heard it. So if you guys uh, listen to that, go listen to that and then be excited for me. If you don't, just be excited for me, I guess. Um, But yeah, that was super exciting last week. I'm losing my mind a little bit. Can you tell? In blog news, I'm trying to keep the blog updated on a relatively regular schedule. Although, like I said, I've had COVID, so things have been a little bit backed up over the holiday season. I'm trying to get back up to between two and four posts a week. We'll see how that goes. Um, simultaneously, I've been posting on TikTok pretty much every day. If you're on there, follow me at Ready for Polyamory. I'm also at Ready for Polyamory on Instagram. And uh, as always, I'm on Twitter at LauraCB88. I kept my personal account for that one. <laughs> so now we're going to jump into talking with Corwin about polyamorous cohabitation. So thank you for joining me to talk about polyamory and polyamorous cohabitation. Uh, so I know originally we met because we both went to a meetup of polyamorous families and sort of gravitated towards each other because our kids were similar ages and we were living in somewhat similar setups. That's right. (laughs) I remember that like it was yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Right, almost a decade ago, but... uh, like, so I was living in a nesting V with my ex-partner and my ex-meta, um, and that continued for several years after that point. And we sort of saw you and your partners, you were in a nesting triad at the time, as, like, goals. Um, which, once we I became you- friends, it was a little... We were more chill, but for the first like six months, we were like, oh my God, these people are goals. We need to become their best friends and also not tell them that we're quietly adoring of them. I, I think you were, you were like a couple of weeks from moving in together at that point when we met. We were still uh, renovating the house. Yeah. We were putting like final paint in. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we had moved in like um, all together a month prior, but like clearly gave off the energy that we've been doing this for decades and we're nailing it. Look, you were there with two babies and not dead, so we were pretty sure that you guys had it under control. To be fair, I still live with one of those people, so like something clearly is working. See, Um, you know what you're doing. (laughs) I've only brought you the experts, people. Only the experts. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. And uh, I think that's at the time, uh, so that was my first poly relationship. Uh, and like, yeah, I mean, if you go back and listen to some of the other episodes on this podcast, you might hear the rest of the story of how like five months into my first poly relationship, I became a parent. Um uh, <laughs> And uh, all the fun things with that. Uh, But uh, we were a triad. um, And uh, at the time, a closed triad. And so for us, the idea of living together as a poly family was very different uh, in a way than like a nesting V that might be open to other partners or, you know, a couple living together that is also dating other people or a solo poly person. you know, there, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of setups. And uh, uh, we've kind of, I mean, between you and I, we've done a few of these setups. <laughs> right. I think at this point, over the last decade, we've got several of them under our belts. Um, so the, the sort of textbook on polyamorous cohabitation is Jess Mailer's The Polyamorous Household. And uh, Jess divides that book into the solo polyamorous household the polyamorous group household which can be a triad or bigger of people who are all involved with one another and then or people who aren't all involved with one another but are all like networked together enough that they feel involved or the house of a polyamorous couple that is the sort of hub of a polycule that's the three ways that she divides that book um and so i in my first well not my first polyamorous relationship but my first polyamorous relationship that involved cohabitation was with my ex-husband and so it was very much that polyamorous couples household in that like we nested we had other partners and they visited sometimes for overnights sometimes for daytime events like sometimes just for a date and one of us would go out like so we lived for a while with roommates for a while just us but together for several years before we broke up um and then in the relationship that i was in following that i lived in a nesting v for several years and then after that breakup i continued to live with my ex and my ex meta for a couple of years after that uh while co-parenting for a couple of years following um before i switched to my current functionally solo but like in a roommatey situation <laughs> life so i feel like at this point i've sort of covered all of jess's situations but not all the situations i've ever seen right like i know people who have literally lived sort of communally um and like you've done the actually and entwined everybody involved with each other uh triad living together and actually so is so is my current partner doing which is like 
I see people do it and I can't imagine. <laughs> it's it's a living. <laughs> um, it's definitely an interesting thing. In a lot of ways, uh, like what is appealing about that or like what was appealing to me to a degree about that was honestly the idea that um, you have like efficiencies built into it, right? Like the idea that you only need to make one meal now for three people instead of for two people. That's mm -hmm. only, you know, like your chores are now divided up between three people instead of two. Uh, your income is three people instead of two to maintain the same, you know, like the driveway needs to be plowed in the winter if you live where it snows one way or the other. It doesn't matter if it's one person, two people, three people living in the house. And so by having more people, you kind of get that, those kinds of efficiencies built into your living setup. Um, but like obviously the well-being of your household also depends on the well-being of your relationships and like my thing has always been that triads, there's four relationships. There's the individual like sides of the triangles. And then there's the kind of relationship that the three people have together when they're together, mm -hmm. which is not the same thing as those individual relationships. And so like triads are playing life on hard mode, um, just like Polly's playing life on hard mode. So this is hard mode of hard mode, uh, but there is there are some very nice things about the fact that like you know if i would go out and like shovel the driveway to clear enough snow that means two other people don't have to as opposed to one other person or you know everybody has to shovel our driveway right and like honestly we got some of those same benefits nesting in a v the the one thing i was always and still am a little bit jealous of like you guys then or my partner and his triad now are things like you can still have a guest room but you all share the one nice master bedroom right like living in a <laughs> yes. v instead when we were living in a v me and my meta each had like similarly situated master equivalent bedrooms like we functionally shared like we shared the one nicer bathroom and then we had the two bedrooms on either side of it and the hinge bounced back and forth between our rooms he didn't have like his own room he had a section in each closet and bounced back and forth um and this worked from a like the way the house was set up standpoint but from a we were literally using every square inch of that house standpoint it was occasionally a little frustrating because like if we did have guests the choice becomes like displace the children or like make the guests sleep on the living room floor which like i guess is always a thing when you're choosing how big a space to live in it's always a trade-off of like money for space or things like this but it's especially one when it's like, well, but we have three people's incomes and resources going toward this and we're still not getting the efficiency out of it. Yeah, uh, no, so I think the the elephant in the room when it comes to poly living situations is that um, you need space. Like you can't 
I don't think that you can do it without the kind of space that you're in starting to impact your relationships. Um, you know, like there's a certain size limit that you're like, we can't squeeze more adults into a living situation in this size space without bursting at the seams, without getting on each other's nerves and eventually affecting the relationship that's happening. Um, but also the layout of the space can matter a lot. And so like one anecdote that I'll give you about this. So when I was in this triad, uh, we bought a house together and the house had a really nice master bedroom with an attached master bathroom that has like this fancy, fancy whirlpool tub uh, that was like the big draw of the house. Um, and this worked great for us as a triad while we were a triad because we had this big master bedroom. We actually will talk about beds, I'm sure, and, and, and that setup. But we, we've had a king size and a queen size bed in that bedroom for the three people. Uh, and that worked for us. And then once the triad dissolved into essentially three single people, uh, that was sort of the end state of that. And one of those people moved out. And so it was me and another partner in this house. We actually both moved out of the master bedroom because neither one of us really wanted to lay claim to that shared space. Mm -hmm. And so we moved into the tiny guest bedrooms so that we both could have access to the nice amenities. Mm -hmm. And the moral of the story is that house was set up fantastically well for a triad for people having guests, for potential additional partners. It was not set up well for anything but a triad uh, when it comes to poly living. Um, because you had this big disparity between this like really big fancy master suite and the rest of the bedrooms. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you are considering a poly living space, that is something to take into account is, uh, as your dynamics of your relationship may or may not change over time, how would that impact who stays where? Right. So having a plan for what happens if your dynamics change for how equalized the space is, the, um, the polyamorous households book basically just suggests squirreling away enough money that anyone can move out and that the polyamorous household can fund anyone moving out, um, which I think is an interesting way to approach it and kind of great advice, like having enough money saved that you could all individually split a household sounds like amazing advice, but we live in a capitalist hellscape where no one has those kinds of savings. So most of the time, even if we're trying to like plan for a rainy day, it's a lot more feasible to think about, okay, for the first few months while we're figuring out how this is going to look, or if it's one of the relationships in a triad breaks up, not two or three or four of them, how is this going to look? Right? Yeah. If the triad becomes a V, how will we split this up? Yeah, and I, so I think that goes into, you know, the, the question of finances uh, and, and how do you set that up? Uh, I think, you know, my sort of motto in life is don't climb up on a, a tree from which you can't climb down as much as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And so, like, if you buy a place or rent a place where, like, all of you need to be full-time employed it requires all of the people involved to contribute 
that probably is not ideal in the sense that it does not have the kind of safety factor that life oftentimes demands. Like losing a job happens, losing your health, which then loses you your job and your income happens. Yep. Uh, so like if you have three people involved and you want to find a place, ideally find a place that two people can support, any two of those. Uh, and if that's not the case, or if you have a big disparity in your incomes, like have a serious conversation about how you're going to handle one of the people with the higher earning level losing their job, being without a job for a period of time. Uh, and this is like, this is not poly specific, right? This is really like good life advice, I think. People need to consider that if they're doing, if they're considering moving in together for monogamy in this economy reasons, um, that as much as you're getting some economies of scale, you're not saving that much. If you're going into a bigger space, mm -hmm. if you're making space for things like a guest room for places to have other partners over for things like that. And if you're not doing that, you need to have conversations about what the logistics of your other relationships are going to look like. Right. If you're not an entirely closed unit that intends to stay closed, which everyone who I've known who has been in a closed unit that intended to stay closed didn't end up staying that way for more than a few years. So please consider what your future might look like a little bit. Where will you meet with your partners who aren't in your nesting relationship if you're downsizing for all of you to be able to afford this new place on less income, right? Like, it's one of those things where you have to kind of balance things. And when there aren't kid considerations involved, sometimes people do the thing where it's like, well, we moved to the town with the worst schools where the rent is cheaper. Because the rent is cheaper all over town. <laughs> like, and take what would be the family house in that town with just the adults, right? But if you're a family with kids, maybe that strategy doesn't work as well for you and then you've got to rejigger your your thoughts. When you start involving kids in your housing decisions, that I, that I think could work. Well, it changes the whole calculation, yeah. right? Like lots of people make entirely different decisions about their housing when they consider their children, um, just as a note. Polyamory is not a protected class for custody purposes in literally any state in the union, although several states now have enough sort of precedent sitting that isn't unfavorable that, you know, talk to a lawyer and make your choices. Um, but like, depending on what your situation with the other parents of whatever child is involved, think about it before you make changes to your living situation. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, to me, the biggest thing, so I just went through picking out a new place about a year ago and, and buying a new house. Mm -hmm. um, for me, the considerations honestly were looking for a place that does not have a very obvious master suite that mm -hmm. is just way too nice compared to everything else where Bedrooms are roughly equivalent where access to resources is roughly equivalent, um, where common spaces are 
the focus set up and well where they're set up in a way that is usable by everyone mm -hmm. um and uh and a place that you can afford because nothing kills relationships faster than like struggling with money mm -hmm. um now if you are setting up specifically like you want to have the big master suite and then like one person wants to live in their own little cubby under the stairs like if that works for you, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. But just consider, just like anything else when it comes to polyamory, that like you're making a choice, make a conscious choice and look at everything that's in front of you before committing to it. And don't go by that's the default. Right. Also consider that resentments can form over time and that feeling okay with it on the day of the home tour while everyone is excited is different than continuing to feel excited about it when like you start to feel like the second fiddle or the old shoe when you're sleeping in your cupboard under the stairs and the other partners are enjoying the jacuzzi tub right like exactly. it's not a big deal if you actually are sharing the shared resources or whatever or if the like nice bathroom opens to the hallway instead of to the master bedroom only or whatever but if you have to pass through your partner's space to get to the nice amenity that you're supposedly sharing, it can start making people feel strange about it over time, considering those things matters. Yep. And this is where, like, depending on your resources, getting creative is totally fine. It's mm -hmm. totally fine to say, hey, that was a living room, but we're going to convert it to the master suite and we're going to take the master suite and convert it to the living room. Right. Um, and if you've got the money to do things like just stick an extra door in and like, look, this bathroom now opens to the hallway as well. Suddenly things work better sometimes, depending on yep. space and configuration. Right. But again, a lot of these things require some resources, some money, the fact that you own the space, not rent it. Right. I will say like small things like that. Uh, you know, again, yeah, if you especially the living if you, room is a small thing, right? But like knocking down a wall or whatever would be bigger. So it, it is and it isn't in the sense that like if you are smart about it, so you, if you do your research, like putting in a door to the tune of $300 is cheaper than a whole lot of couples therapy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have just given an answer that is the most you answer I've ever heard. Um, if I can throw money at the problem rather than emotional effort, I will. That 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 is my take. I don't always take that route, but sometimes it's an easy choice. Just I like, do not uh, endorse this point of view. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think getting creative with it. So, like one of the other problems that always comes up in poly living households, especially in the more like not not communal living, but more close. Mm -hmm kind of polycules try your triad through like very close nesting v's things like mm -hmm. that is like how do people sleep yep and the perpetual problem of the person that sleeps in the middle of the full-size bed with two other people beside them or whatever right always yeah. use at least two blankets and let the middle vent I, I, i'm a big fan of everybody gets their own blanket right uh, at a minimum two and the middle person controls the venting Ideally, each person gets their own. Yep. Get the biggest bed you can get in, into the space and you can afford. Um, yep. Like the, the, that foot of space in a king size bed versus a queen size bed 
can make a big difference. difference. Yeah. Um, what I did uh, at one point was honestly, we call this the mega bed, where we put a king size bed next to a queen size bed. And uh, it was great because if we all wanted to be really close together, we all squeezed in on the king size bed or the queen size bed. Uh, nobody wants that sort of middle between the two bed space where you fall through. But like three people can can get pretty cozy on either of those sizes. But then if we all wanted to just get some sleep, we spread out and one person got the queen size bed, another two people got the king size bed and that worked well. Uh, you can get any configuration you want as long as it fits in the space. And yeah, I mean, it's, it might look a little weird, but uh, if it works, it works. And for us, it did for uh, a good long while. Yeah. And like a couple of queen size beds pushed together is bigger than a king size, but sometimes easier to get into a space, depending. Honestly, you can. Uh, I started looking into this and never really felt the need to because we did solve it this way. But uh, a lot of companies that make mattresses for RVs you can get a custom cut foam mattress where you can get a custom size for not a ton more than what you would pay for, you know, a nice king size bed. Yeah, Uh, but you guys had mega beds, so it didn't matter. Yeah, for for us, it it, it worked out just fine. And (laughs) mega bed was an awesome invention, Uh, you know. So yeah, the the other thing though is uh, with beds. So. To me, this always comes up as not just like who gets to sleep in the middle and gets to be super hot because mm-hmm. everybody's cuddling them, but also other partners. Mm-hmm. So let's say that you don't have guest bedrooms or mm-hmm. don't have access to them for whatever reason. You know, you have two or three people living together that share a bed. One of them wants to bring a partner home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you arrange that? And this is this has been a perennial question in all the poly circles that I've ever been a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, so for a while, um, my partner didn't have a guest room. And so there was just no bed at that house to be used if all of the partners were home. Um, because all of the partners shared the one like this nesting triad share their king size bed right and that was super inconvenient (laughs) because it was like well we can have sex while my partners are out if we immediately take off the sheets change the sheets and remake the bed before they get home because that's their boundary is that their bed needs to be made with clean sheets before they sleep in it again cool okay but then what does that mean if we want to like have a sleepover? Well, it's got to be at your house or not happen. Or I guess we can get a hotel. But like, that's expensive. So a couple times a year we can get a hotel? So it was a big relief when they eventually no longer had a roommate and turned that back into a guest room. Yeah. Uh, so I think for me, the, the there is... A- kind of a choice to be made is um i mean if, you can always book dates on the same nights and trade places but like yeah i mean like so setting aside those kinds of like convenient setups where the problem just kind of takes care of itself or like only dating people that have their own places so you don't have to worry about it <laughs> uh, 
um, which is just like not always feasible, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the I think the uh, the thing that you have to consider is like, do I want uh, my bed where I normally sleep to be also the one that is offered to guests, right? Like, is your partner okay with you bringing a date home and using your shared bed for sex, for cuddling, for an overnight, and vice versa? Are you okay with your partner doing that? Uh, that that's kind of decision one. Right. Um, Have you decided that that's relational space for just your relationship, or is it space that can be used for various relationships? Right. If you decide that it is something that can be shared with people outside of the people you live with, uh, there's some logistics that you need to work out. Like, where is my partner going to sleep when I have an overnight with my outside partner? Um, the other thing uh, that you need to consider is, uh, or like you said, uh, yeah, like the courtesy of like, what are the boundaries? Do you need to change the sheets? Do you need to... Uh, you know, what else do you need to do to sort of get the room back to where it was before you had your overnight day, things like that. Um, I find that for me personally, like the bed that I sleep in is generally not for sharing unless otherwise specified. Uh, But if uh, if you don't have that ability to share your bed, then yeah, like the next best thing is a guest bedroom because hotels really add up. And like it's that whole throwing money at the problem thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like one once, twice a year, it's you know a fun adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, more than that, and it becomes an ongoing expense. Yep. And at that point, like consider like, are you spending more on these hotels and Airbnbs and things than you would be on a furnishing more a guest solution? room? Furnishing a guest room, moving some things around, figuring something out. Right. Um, if you have the actual floor space, spending a weekend's worth of time rejiggering your setup so that you have space for it and the money to get a futon or a pullout couch is worth it. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, and so the other setup, like the setup that you had uh, was kind of interesting and, uh, you know, with the idea that. You have two people that have their own personal space and a third person that's bouncing between them. Uh, and I'm like, there's both like true heaven and awful hell built into that. As for you me may personally. Recall, there was a plan for him to have his own personal space in the entire basement floor. And then he chose to never do the projects he said he would do to finish that basement floor. Mm-hmm. That, that would be priority one for me if I was in that situation. If I was one of the people that had my own space and I had a partner coming in and out, uh, you know, uh, every few days, that would be my, you know, like, right. this is great. There was physical space in the house. It just didn't have the floor that he said he'd put down in it and then a piece of furniture put into it. Yep. So, like, it would eventually have been an option it just ended up getting put further and further down the priority list until it stopped being an apparent priority the idea of having your own space Mm -hmm. having your own you know ability to have your own private kind of thing even if you 99 percent of the time live and sleep with one or more other people in you know same room same bed whatever 
uh, I think is something to consider because I do believe that that allows you a whole bunch of the kinds of freedoms that you you sometimes want in a relationship that, that is with right. more than one person. And I think especially if folks have any attachment to a like bed that more than one person generally sleeps in as a relational space, setting up a second bed somewhere else in the house, like whether it's a pull-out couch in a space with a door that closes that can be private space for dates so that folks aren't feeling like they have to leave the house or they have to kick you out of your bed and your space, right? Because while I managed to live in a one-bedroom apartment with my ex-husband and both of us not mind when we occasionally kicked each other out, a lot of that was because we were mostly dating each other's friends. And so, like, not minding if one or the other of us overheard something and then all crashing in the bed together to sleep sleep was pretty common at that time, right? It was our early 20s. It was a sort of relaxed and ridiculous time. Um, but if we hadn't all been quite so, like, silly theater kid about it, it might have been a very different vibe. And it might have been a much less comfortable thing to be living in a three-room, one-bedroom while each having several partners. Right. Um, when you can't manage that, when there just isn't space, you end up having to figure out what your compromises are. For some people, that boundary of the bed being their own space is a really hard boundary. They absolutely have to hold it. It's like psychologically uncomfortable for them to handle it. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think it's something that, you know, you want to think about what kind of poly person are you? You know, if for you, it's really important to be able to have your partners in your space uh, and have them there overnight. How are you going to set that up? Um, and think about that from day one, like don't hold off having that conversation with yourself and with other people with whom you're planning on sharing space until like three years in when you're like for the past three years i've been waiting to have a guest bedroom so i can have my you know outside partner over and it has not happened right. i've been so uh, uncomfortable about it for so long is never a great way to start a conversation have it before you get there. right um right and and if it means waiting six extra months so you can you know save up or find the right place or whatever like trust me it's worth it so you then get into the biggest question I get asked about polyamorous households is about finances and splitting bills and things like that, because people always think it must be enormously complicated. And it can be. Um, but basically, it's as complicated as your bills are. Pretty much. Because just like with a married couple, of any variety, you get to sort of go either we want to join everything or we want to look at what our household's expenses are and what we each make and then put in a percentage of what we each make to cover the household's expenses and hold the rest as personal money. And you can do that either in equal dollar amounts or by percentages of what you make proportionally 
And then you just get into personal preference to figure out all of those things, right? Like some people feel very unhappy about how the situation is set up unless they're all putting in an equal amount. Some people feel very unhappy about what they're putting in unless they're putting in proportional amounts to what they make. Like it's really about who's involved, what your relative situations are. Um, yeah. And like figuring out a way to sort of set things up so that if you have a stay at home person, either to like care for the household or to care for children, that they have some money being put aside by the household for them to use for personal expenses that isn't like an allowance that they're having to ask one of you for is essential because there's nothing that builds resentment faster than having to like beg one of your partners for a Starbucks a month. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. I, so it's, I, uh, have lived in households that had people with varying degrees of income. We had some high earners and some low earners. We had people that were unemployed for a period of time. Um, it is a tricky balance to strike. I think just like with anything else, open, honest communication uh, and, you know, and know, know your numbers. Like that's the, one of the biggest things is, uh, have a household meeting where you can bring to the table, here's what it costs to run this place. Here's what the cost of rent or mortgage is. Here's what the cost of utilities is. Uh, seasonal utilities are a big thing because if you're doing mm -hmm. you know, this meeting in like April when it's neither hot nor cold uh, and it's all the utilities happen. look great. Yeah, it, no, it's, it's gonna not switch gonna when it gets at any other time of year. April and October right. are not ideal. Right. So like, actually, honestly, look at this stuff. Um, look at your other expenses, uh, groceries, insurance. Uh, do be realistic about that. What I find, uh, like, being an engineer, for me, you can't fix something you cannot measure. So measure, like, mm -hmm. ac actually figure out how much it takes to run a household at a minimum. Anything that you make above that, is and, money you can allocate anything below that it's already allocated you're, you've you've done that work and round um, up where you need to right. because human error yep. always yep and so the big question is uh always with these kinds of situations do you combine your money or do you keep it separate um i have found that with the advent of technology now it is easier than ever to keep your money separate yeah. So uh, I have no relationship with this uh, app other than I'm a happy customer. There's an app called Splitwise that automatically figures this shit out for you. It connects to Venmo. And so once a month I go, I need to settle my stuff. So this person owes me money. They'll send me money when they get paid and I owe this person money. So I, I send this to them. And every time I pay the for heating oil or for the driveway to be plowed or whatever, I put it in and go this, I paid for this and this is split and this proportion with these other people um you can right. use so whatever you figured out your proportions ahead of time and then you input them in your app and it does all the work for you basically and we yeah. so we had a household meeting where we kind of decided exactly how this is going to work mm -hmm. uh, and we, we have had several of these where we sort of revise them over time based on where everybody's at mm -hmm. and uh we have you know the agreement that like this these are the proportions so when I buy something for the house, 
I go, okay, I know I'm responsible for this percentage of it. And these other people are responsible for this percentage of it. So I'm putting in that, you know, I spent $300 on whatever, this is the proportion that it's going to be split. In. Um, this allows me to know and expect what my personal budget is going to be for the month. And then I know what is money that I already allocated and spent, even though it's sitting in my bank still. And mm -hmm. what is the money that I need to, you know, that, that I can use for my own personal fund funds or whatever. Uh, this way, we don't get into a situation with shared money that I think is a big pitfall for people. If you have somebody, let's say that, let's say you have somebody that makes $100,000 and then somebody that makes $10,000 and they're together and they're a couple, mm -hmm. just two people that combine their money. Yep. And the $10,000 person goes and spends 40 grand on a new car. Mm -hmm. Is that a problem in that relationship? Not necessarily, not inherently, as long as they've had the understanding about that. But if that, that means that they can't make their mortgage payments or their rent payments, then it does become a problem. And that breeds resentment like nothing else. So that's why I think that exp being explicit about money transfers is better. But it does create the opposite resentment of the $10,000 income person saying, hey, I need to buy a new car. Can you spot me 20 grand? Yep. That's a big ask. Uh, and if it, and if it's even if it's not a big ask, even if it's just a little ask, even if it's a, I need to buy gas, can I borrow your card so I can go buy gas for my car so I can get to work to make my $10,000 a year? Like that can also breed resentment. So just be realistic and honest about it. Right. Having been the person who is underemployed in a situation, um, it is important when you're setting up something like this to set up a system whereby people have some reasonable amount of access to a little bit of money for their like everyday expenses so that it's not people chasing you down to make sure that they have enough to like get the gas to get the kids to the place or whatever right because then it creates bad feelings most of them. yeah uh, I, I think one of the things that i would strongly advise people avoid is the idea of i'll pay this bill like i'll pay the cell phone bill and i'll pay the electric bill like right because the dollar amounts never even out exactly the way you think they will and and bills change and come and go mm -hmm. uh, you know you will hit that summertime when your kids need to go to summer camp when it's not free public education it's all of a sudden you know, however many hundreds of dollars a week, and suddenly the equation has changed. Or, you know, you're paying the, the heating bill, which is only relevant in the winter. Uh, so I don't advise doing that. I, you know, if you're going to be doing things like that, like talk about the actual dollar amount you can contribute towards the household. And if you want to, you can set up a shared account. This is another strategy that honestly works pretty well. And I have that right now is where we set up a shared household account and we agreed to contribute a fixed amount from our personal funds every month to that. Right. Uh, but only certain kinds of expenses can come out of that. Like I can't go grocery shopping with this because we do grocery shopping separately, but mortgage gets paid, electric, you know, whatever gets paid out of this mm -hmm. account. Yeah. Um, so that's another strategy. Yeah. So there's a bunch of ways to do this where you can 
either set up a joint account and everybody puts in a dollar amount or a percentage, and then you work from there for some of these big bills. Things like this can be a pretty good way to set it up. Uh, it can be especially handy if you use that to um, withdraw funds for things like a car that the lower earning person maybe couldn't afford, but the household needs them to have. Um, but again, there are pros and cons to all of these things and people need to figure them out individually. Um, with really literally everything about this, just like all of polyamory, nothing is a one-size-fits-all solution. <laughs> and everything could be different for you this year and five years from now and ten years from now. So just be prepared to talk about it as you move forward. Um, I think some people have like big concerns about people bringing other partners into their space, not necessarily for the like having sex parts of things, but for the just other humans being in their space at times that they don't control kind of thing. Um, and while I think that's more of a discussion to have in a, like, what kind of structure do you want your polycule to have? How much interaction do you want to have kind of conversation? It does matter a lot more when you're going to cohabit with someone, right? If you haven't previously been living with someone, finding out ahead of time what their habits of spending time with their partners in their space are, is really important because if it turns out that like you're usually the kind of person who goes out with partners you don't bring people into your space a lot you're an introvert who likes to have your home to yourself and you feel like they're kind of a neutral person who you can handle having around they're like a non-stimulus functionally but all of their partners aren't non-stimuli for you and they're more extroverted and want to have someone over every day, how's that going to affect you? You don't want that surprise that they are used to having outside partners over three times a week. And you're like, that's a three times a year thing for me, maybe if we really talk about it. Right. Like if you like controlling your interactions with people by going into their space, think about it before merging your space with other people's. Yep. Yeah. I mean, like, again, there's different kinds of solutions to this that, yeah. that you can try, you know, if your partner works from home and they have their home office, that becomes their space, right? Like sure. maybe, right. Like that, that, that's an option. Don't bring them into where they would normally bring them. If you're mo moving in with this partner into your shared master bedroom, you know, something like that, or, uh, you know, have the honest conversation with them. Like how, how do you expect this to work? Right. Uh, Just discuss it ahead of time and figure out what's reasonable because if it's that they're used to having somebody over four days a week and you'd rather it was once a month, figure out whether they can move some of their dates elsewhere and have people over once or twice a week and whether you can handle that or whether it can be like once a week and then you see from there, like what's the compromise that the two of you can reach? If there's more than two of you moving in together, it then becomes more complicated, but I feel like this wouldn't be the primary barrier if there's more than two of you moving in together in the first place, because people's expectations might be a little different. 
in that case, it might be more things like, are you guys now going to be the hub or the host of like larger polycule gatherings because there's now a critical mass of you. So it's easier for folks to come to you, right? Like, and then it's, well, we don't like to host or we do like to host or whatever and figure it out. Yep. Yeah, and you know, figure out like, like you said, I mean, it's important to figure out what what's going to bother you more. The fact that, you know, your partner brought somebody in for a quick, you know, roll in the hay or for brunch. Right. Because for some people, brunch is harder because brunch requires a lot more of them. Putting on noise canceling headphones or going for a walk while their partner has somebody over for a quickie, not a big deal. But like, oh, you mean I have to expend social energy and emotional labor to not be at all rude to this person. I didn't have my people face on today. There is a lot to be learned from trying some of this. But if you're going to do any of these things on a trial basis, especially, make sure that you're doing it in a way where, as Corinne was saying, you can climb back down the tree that you climbed up. <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm a big fan for all of these kinds of things, as much as possible, to say, we're going to try this for six weeks, right? Like, we're, like the dishes never get done. Let's try a chore wheel, but it's not a permanent solution. It's a trial for six weeks. Mm -hmm. And if it works, we'll try it for another six weeks. And if it works, we'll try it for 12 weeks. Yeah. Um, like... Uh, chores are one of the big contentious things that, oh, that come up, and uh, and it's one of those things where, like, just like you will, you're very unlikely to find people who have the exact same income level and you know amount of money that they are willing to contribute to the household or able to contribute to the household. Even more variability will be in how much energy people are willing to contribute in terms of upkeeping the household and what kinds of things they're willing to do. Like for me. I would rather paint the whole house like up and down, left and right once a year than do the dishes every day. Or, I'm sure there's lots of people like that. Right. Whereas like I will do the dishes after every single meal and do all of the laundry before I scrub a bathroom. Like and, uh, I will. You want to move in, right? I Like I will scrub a bathroom <laughs> once a week, but like... It's the maximum and only if I have to, if someone right. else will do it, I will never do it. Yeah. And I, I think that's, you know, again, being honest with a, what you're willing to do and not willing to do, uh, or something that you consider to be a harder ask because I have tried, uh, chore wheels and schedules and things like that. I have mm -hmm. tried different agreements. Um, oh yeah. The color coded chore list. Yep. Like some of these things work better than others and it really depends on the people that you do them with. And, you know, if you do a color-coded chore list with, with, if you do a color-coded chore list with a colorblind slacker, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, like, sorry, that's, it's, it, it doesn't matter that you think it's a good system. It's just not going to work. So uh, for that, I think the biggest thing is like for yourself, figure out like, these things I consider to be easy and no big deal. These things I consider to be a bigger ask, but I'm willing to do them if nobody else is. And these things I just cannot do for one reason or another. Like 
I cannot make it to the end of the mile long driveway in the ice storm to take out the garbage, mm-hmm. like incapable, right? But I'm perfectly willing to do dishes all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what are these things? And then compare them to the rest of your household and figure out, well, like, do we actually like have enough here to take care of the things on a regular basis? Um, And if you discover that there's an entire category that you're missing, see if there's enough money to hire someone to do it. If it turns out that all of you have a gaping hole in like outdoor chores, there are services for this. Or haven't raised children. Wow. (laughs) In like 20 years. You choose not to. (laughs) Like. In like 20 years, this will be great. They'll take care of everything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh no but yeah that's that's exactly it in, indoor and outdoor chores there are people that are going to professionally take care of it for you again i'm going to preach a little tiny bit about the idea of throwing money at a problem instead of at a therapist to fix the you know now crater where your relationship used to be over the fact that nobody vacuums yeah like hire a service that'll come and clean your house even once a month and it may be more affordable than sort of the the retail therapy, the the actual therapy, uh, you know, the various things that you try to avoid right. doing those, the those conversations. The weeks will cost less than the amount you will drink otherwise. Exactly. Uh, so, like, it, it it is something to consider, right? Like, it may seem like a luxury. And again, trial it. We will try this for, you know, two months, once a month made service or twice a week or, you know, twice a month made service and see what happens. Is this going to actually make it better? Can we actually afford this? Right. Um, Can we keep it up between that? Is it making a difference in the quality of things? Right. Um, And, you know, because like I have found that, yes, when you have more than two people and especially people that work very different kinds of jobs, Mm -hmm. if you have people that like, work shift work, if you have people that work uh, 60 hours a week, if you have people that, you know, if if you don't have a lot of overlap where people can actually do a big house cleaning once a month or whatever, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it very well might be worth it. We think of these things as like, oh, I need to, you know, have my house repainted. So that's something I'm going to hire somebody for because I don't have the equipment or whatever. But the inside of the house is what you interact with most times. And that's where like your housemates will drive you nuts if you're not taking care of it. Right. If not, everyone is going to be home like Sunday afternoon to spend all of Sunday afternoon and evening doing a group house clean once a month or whatever. Hire someone. There's no substitute for experience with, with communal living, unfortunately. And uh, like I, the way I grew up, it was three at one point, four generations of people living in a one bedroom apartment uh, that was filled to the brim with people and stuff. Uh, and so I have this aversion to cramped spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't know what I'm doing living with five other humans at this point. Like this, this makes no sense to me, but just like with anything else in life, it's who you surround yourself with matters. Like you can work the most boring, awful, terrible job as long as the people you work with are nice. And you can be miserable at the most interesting job 
if the people you work with are jackasses. Yep. Uh, there's no reason why your living situation should be viewed as anything different. Uh, it starts with people and it ends with people. And like the power of caring a lot about the people who you're infuriated with goes a really long way in forgiving them quickly. Uh, yeah. So just in smoothing over household spats, I find it's really helpful when you're managing things with the people who you really care about. Are you saying get under them to get over the fact that they didn't do the dishes? I mean, it doesn't <laughs> hurt. Listen, I will say that I personally care a lot less about what the house looks like when I'm on good terms with everyone. Right. It's, it's they get on my nerves when, uh, you know, when there's something else going on. About something else, it gets on your nerves more that they haven't additionally done a chore. Yep. And I assume in reverse that I haven't picked up stuff or whatever. Yep. Uh, you know, having the most gorgeous, well-kept house is not going to fix a fucked up relationship. But having a fucked up relationship will absolutely make any house feel miserable. Yep, for sure. So. So. Thank you for chatting with me. I hope that something that we said seems helpful to someone. <laughs> I, doubt, I, I highly doubt anything I said well. <laughs> That's how I feel at the end of most episodes. So people keep right, telling so, me that the things I say are helpful. So I think it's working. <laughs> must be doing something right. <laughs> got to be doing something right. Um, so things that you have coming up, you're going to be teaching with me at Tethered in March. Um, well, not with me, but at the same weekend as me. Um, yes, very excited about Tether, uh, Tether Together. Um, it's been a long time coming with all the canceled and the now uncanceled finally events. Yes, yes. It is going to be nice to be going to an in-person event again. Um, so that's in Stamford, Connecticut on March 11th to 14th. Um, both of us are going to be teaching, so are a slew of other wonderful people. There is a um, art show on Friday night that some of Corwin's photography is going to be in, I believe. Uh, I, I, I'm hoping so. I don't know the details yet, but I plan on, if they want my art, I am planning on bringing my art there. Nice. And... Um, we're both going to be teaching during the weekend. I'm going to be running a polyamory meetup at some point during the weekend. I'm waiting for the organizers to give me the schedule to know exactly when. Tickets are available at tetheredtogether.net, and I'll throw the link to that in the show notes. But thank you for joining me to talk about this. So one last thank you to Corwin for being on the show with me today. Um, if anybody's got any specific questions or things you want me to address in a blog post or a Twitter thread, please feel free to email me at readyforpolyamory at gmail.com or put a comment in the uh, contact form on the blog or on the post that sort of has the link to this uh, podcast episode. And I'll be happy to sort of answer or write a post about anything to do with this. I haven't really put up many posts about polyamorous cohabitation because it was just how I lived for so long that it didn't really seem like much of a topic, but I've been getting the occasional question, so I thought it might be a fun uh, podcast episode. 
I realized that during the episode we called Jess Baylor's book, The Polyamorous Household, it's actually called The Polyamorous Home, and I've got it appropriately linked in the show notes. And of course, uh, I've got the classes coming up on Sunday, which is the Beyond the Kitchen Table class, and in February, um, the Relationship Anarchy Applied class, both of which you can find links for in the show notes, and I'd be really excited to see any of you there. Uh, Whether you're there or not, I hope you have a great week, and I will see you soon with more uh, podcasts. (laughs) 